If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Recently, Professor David Abelafia was announced the winner of the 2020 Wolfson History Prize for his book, The Boundless Sea, A Human History of the Oceans. Our content director, David Musgrove, called him to talk about the oceans and the people who crossed them in the early medieval period. If you want to hear a longer version of this conversation, with some exclusive content at the end about the importance of the slave trade in the human history of the oceans, you can find that on our website. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts. I am delighted to be joined today by Professor David Abulafia, Emeritus Professor of Mediterranean History at Cambridge University and author of, among other things, the Wolfson Prize-winning book, The Boundless Sea, A Human History of the Oceans, published last year, but it has just won the Wolfson Prize in June 2020. So David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, we're delighted to have the Wolfson winner on the History Extra podcast. But first up, let's jump into it. What do you mean by the title, What is a Human History of the Oceans? And I suppose also following on that, uh, how does this link to your earlier book on the Mediterranean, which was titled The Great Sea, also A Human History of the Mediterranean? Yes, it's a very important dimension to what I've been trying to do, because there are obviously many ways of writing maritime history. Uh, and one can write maritime history from an environmental point of view, of course. That is something which has become quite popular. One can write about what's happening under the surface of the seas, so books about the history of the fishing industry or whatever. But what I really mean is the way in which humans have interacted with the sea, and it's a different way. It's crossing the sea. It's using the sea as a means of communication to get from one place to another, from one continent to another in the case of actually not just my book on the oceans, the new one, but also the old one on the Mediterranean, because that's where Asia, Africa and Europe meet. So 
what I'm trying to do is to focus on the sea rather than the lands around the sea. And you know, when you ask me about the relationship to that earlier book, a lot turns on the legacy of a very great French historian with whom I do beg to differ, Fenon Brodel, who wrote this book in the 1940s about the Mediterranean in the 16th century, or I should say the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean world. So he was situating his sea in the middle of those great continents, and his Mediterranean sometimes spread all the way from Krakow deep into Africa. That's something I'm trying to get away from. Um, And I'm also trying to get away from his failure to take into account the human element. For him, it was actually the environment, the physical setting, the mountains and the plains that determined the whole history of that region. And then other historians since then, particularly in France, have written about the Indian Ocean uh, and the Atlantic and so on from this, as we say, Brodelian viewpoint, uh, which is rather deterministic in which the sorts of decisions made by individuals, you know, you think of people like Christopher Columbus with his rather crazy ideas about how to reach China and Japan, their role is reduced to insignificance, really, in the case of Brodel's work. Uh, And I'm trying to put the individual back in the centre of the frame. Okay, good. Well, thank you. And, and it's, a, it's a big book and a brilliant book, and I really enjoyed reading it. And obviously, it's, it's a worthy winner of that prize. But it also covers far too much in time and space for us to be able to do it justice uh, in the confines of one podcast. So what I thought I would try and do is, is get us to hone in on, on one time period. And I was thinking the early medieval period, try to get a sense of what's going on in the world's oceans during that time. So I'm broadly thinking... Uh, the millennium or so before Columbus 1492, which I realise is still a pretty long time in space. Um, but the reason why I'm thinking that is uh, just from here in Britain, obviously we're, we're recording this in Britain on a, on a very warm day when it would be nice to dive into an ocean. Um, but I'm thinking that people in Britain would probably think of, when they think of maritime history, they'd think of the Vikings, maybe they would think of the Norman Conquest, 1066 and a seaborne invasion, and maybe not think too far beyond that. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can maybe just uh, get a little bit yeah. of sense of that. Now, one quote that I really like from your preface to, to sort of get into that is, um, I'll read it quickly. Um, uh, but the sense that maritime history is being compartmentalised into four main disconnected chunks, the Atlantic, Pacific, Indian Ocean and Mediterranean, has attracted increasing c- uh, criticism. Uh, this book is an attempt to write the history of the three great oceans to- together. That does mean in the millennia before Columbus, treating them separately because they constituted three spheres of human movement that were not directly connected to one another by the movement of humans from one ocean to another, even though goods reached uh, the ports of the medieval Atlantic from uh, from elsewhere. So, so that's the that's the kind of the nub of it, isn't it? How connected is this world that we're talking about in in this period uh, be- before Columbus? Yes, well, obviously that statement is a statement which, as the book proceeds, you begin to see, well, there are actually connections. Uh, The first connection that I would make is that the Pacific and the Indian Ocean have a very special relationship. The broad expanses of the Pacific, where the Polynesians settled on this myriad of islands, that's one story. It's an extraordinary story which stretches deep into the Middle Ages. I mean, New Zealand was only settled around AD 1300. But if we're talking about China and Japan and Korea, 
all very important centres of civilization in the Middle Ages, they really were linked in through the South China Sea and the seas to the north of that, going up to Japan. All of that was linked into the Indian Ocean very much. And indeed, the famous spice trade out of what's now Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, China absorbed far more spices than did the Islamic world and Europe in the Middle Ages. So one has to remember that there's a connection there. And in the book, what I actually do is I deal with the Indian Ocean and that area beyond, the Far East beyond, uh, as a continuum. And the other thing, of course, is looking in the other direction, one of the seas, one of the minor seas that comes into the picture, very importantly, is the Red Sea, because the Red Sea gave access to Alexandria, the great centre of trade in the Mediterranean. So spices were coming up, pepper and so on, and cloves, all these things, being channeled up the Red Sea and then taken across short distance the River Nile up to Cairo and Alexandria and then channeled into the Mediterranean to Venice and Genoa and so on. But what's again very interesting and ties in with what you were just saying, that particularly in the later Middle Ages when a sea route opened up from the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar all the way to England and Flanders, to Bruges particularly in what's now Belgium. At that point, you begin to see an extraordinary series of links. They're separate routes, which which were just sort of linked together. It's not as if a single individual traverses the whole space. So that you end up with people in Riga in Latvia or Tallinn in Estonia consuming spices which have been brought all the way from the Indian Ocean. So there they are in the Baltic, which I treat as an extension of the Atlantic, uh, consuming pepper from the Indies. And indeed, one of the major collections of documents we have about the merchants of the 15th century League of Merchants known as the Hanseatic League, about a family called the Weckinhusen family, which I deal with in the book, the documents were actually discovered in the archives of Estonia in Tallinn in a wooden box. When the This was about 100 years ago. They opened up this box, which nobody had looked at for hundreds of years, and they found it was actually full of peppercorns. And it was only when they took out the peppercorns, which had been there for hundreds of years, underneath the peppercorns, they found this treasure trove of documents. So those connections are extremely important. But really with Columbus going west in search of China, because of course he didn't know that the Pacific existed, and with Vasco da Gama going from Portugal all the way through the Atlantic into the Indian Ocean to India, then his successors pushing beyond that into the Pacific to reach Macau in China and various towns in Japan. Then the from the 15th end of the 15th century onwards, the three major oceans became firmly linked together, much more than they ever had been before. Brilliant. Um, c- can I take you back to, to the start of your answer there, where you mentioned that the, the Silk Road of the Sea, which is that, that lovely phrase, and you go into glorious detail about what was going on in uh, in that in your book. So I, I would love for our listeners to get a little bit of a taste of, of, of the sorts of things that you found there. So how important was, the, was that route? What was, where, and describe where that route was going from. Uh, and what sort of things people were were moving around uh, between between the areas? Yes, the the 
picture that emerges is of, I mean, we, we talk about the Silk Road, which crossed the European landmass, the Eurasian landmass. Actually, that was of relatively minor importance. It was a group of disjointed routes that occasionally, when political circumstances were right, joined together. What really mattered and what has a continuous history, though it had its ups and downs, but a continuous history really from, you could probably go back in a way to the time of the Emperor Augustus 2,000 years ago, is this silk route of the sea. And so what we're looking at is, particularly in the early Middle Ages onwards, we're looking at the movement of shipping. It's not the same ship going the whole distance by and large. It's people dropping goods off and then goods are sort of put in a warehouse, taxed by the local ruler, put on another ship and so on and so forth. But in stages large amounts of, well, Chinese silk is one of the number one products which is carried in the Middle Ages uh, out of southern China, all the way either round the bottom through the Straits of Malacca, so past Singapore, which by the end of the Middle Ages was a flourishing port, and then round India up the Red Sea, but also enormous quantities of porcelain because the Chinese perfected this way of making pottery, this exceptionally thin, very beautiful pottery. And it was an enormous demand in all those countries of the world which had not learned how to produce it or didn't learn for many centuries to come. So one of the things which I find absolutely extraordinary is that in a suburb of Cairo, where we know that in the Middle Ages, a lot of Jewish and Coptic merchants lived, and the Jewish documents still survive. Many of them are in the University Library in Cambridge, merchant letters from the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. So this was an area just very much a part, a suburb of one of the largest cities in the world at the time. And underneath part of that, because it's not been properly excavated, 700,000 pieces of Chinese pottery from the Middle Ages have been found. Last time they were counted, I mean, by now the number must be much greater. So it gives you some idea of this extraordinary set of links that was bringing China into contact with the heartlands of the Islamic world, and increasingly even beyond that. I mean, you have, there's a very famous, very beautiful uh, piece of Chinese pottery in the National Museum in Dublin, which somehow winded its way across. British Museum has a lot of these pieces and so on. And then later on, when we move into the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, the trade out of China became dominated by tea. Uh, that became really the obsession of the Europeans. And uh, again, number of surprises here that one might not have thought this was the obvious place, but Gothenburg in Sweden became one of the very major centres of the importation of Chinese tea in the 18th century. Phenomenal quantities. And then it would be redistributed to places like England, a lot of it ending up in also Boston, famous for the Boston Tea Party at the end of the 18th century, which was, you know, one of the uh, early moments of the American Revolution. 
uh, and which was all to do with uh, the, the Tea Party, was all to do with the taxation of tea by the British government. So um, that China connection across the Indian Ocean is something which has had a formative influence on the politics, society, the taste, I mean, that's a bit of a pun, but the taste, when we think of tea, of the whole world, actually. And what was what was going the other way then? So you've got the porcelain and silk coming from China. What uh, what if anything was going back in the uh, back in the easterly direction? No, that's a very good question because um, the uh, the spice trade. I've mentioned how enormous numbers of spices were being brought up to China from what's now Indonesia. Uh, some of them rather strange ones like camphor, which was used to make uh, rather sort of strongly spelling incense, that sort of thing. So there were these local roots bringing a lot of that, uh, pepper from India, all that sort of thing. Um, and then a very important dimension to this whole question was also the inflow of bullion, uh, gold and silver being brought by these merchants. Um, but there were there were all sorts of Eastern uh, Islamic products, all sorts of things like that, that were reaching these parts of the world, but only the faintest trickle of stuff from Western Europe. I mean, every now and again, a Roman imperial coin turns up in Southeast Asia, but, but they're really oddities. Okay. Um, and then in your book, you also describe um, uh, um, in, 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 in great colour uh, the, the sort of the islands uh, that are along this Silk Road of the Sea, the Silk Road of the Sea, and, and their role in things. So um, you've got, um, uh, hold on, bear with me just one second. So Java, Indonesia, um, places like that that, seem, that that become very important because of their location, I guess. So it gives a, a little bit of an idea about uh, about the role of the islands uh, in in this global um, uh, in this oceanic trade. Yep. Well, you could think of the Indonesian islands as sort of hinges linking that world of the South China Sea, which led to the great cities of southern China. Um, to So you've got that direction. And then in the other direction, you've got the wide spaces of the Indian Ocean leading, as I say, all the way to the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf, which was another area which was trading into the Indian Ocean from actually very, very early times. So uh, the the most interesting sort of phenomenon, if you like, is the emergence of a maritime empire, as it's often been described, on the island of Sumatra. So to the south of Singapore, across the Straits, and on that very big island, with a capital at a place called Palembang. Palembang was a bit of a way inland, actually, but uh, the archaeological remains have been miserable for a long time, and gradually things are coming to light. And it looks as if this was the seat of a local ruler, a Raja, uh, who would, in the early stages of all of this, he'd have been a Hindu, and um, he was gathering in taxes by means of his control of the trade routes, the trade routes that went down through the Straits of Malacca and various other waterways leading into the South China Sea. And so he had this sort of 
network of tax stations and so on, which some historians have then elevated into a real sort of imperial um, sort of set of possessions, uh, controlling large areas of land. It wasn't really like that. For him, what really mattered was control of the taxes that he could draw from this constant flow of traffic from the Indian Ocean into the South China Sea and vice versa. And we have some extraordinary stories of merchants who are trying to get to China and are sort of arrested either by the Raja of this little empire, Srivijaya, or by the rulers of Java, uh, put to death because the rulers decide to confiscate all their wealth. That sort of thing did happen. A lot of piracy in these waters, which, and the piracy really made it necessary for the Rajas of Srivijaya to assert their influence quite far afield. At one point, actually, their kingdom was briefly conquered by the rulers of part of South India. So again, you get a sense of the connections across quite a large maritime space. So you mentioned there taxation and control. How important was control of these seas and, and who, who, who tried to control it the best and who, who actually managed to, to exercise the, the most control over the most important sea routes? The whole question of control of the seas is one of the most difficult and controversial ones, actually, because some historians have maintained, and you can see why, that controlling a sea is actually something which is extremely difficult to do. I mean, controlling a large sea. Um, uh, how do you actually, when you only have ships which are scattered across this enormous surface, how can you actually impose your will on movement across that surface? Uh, so there are enormous numbers of challenges which tend to be met by the building. The Portuguese built a lot of forts along the coasts of South Arabia, what's now the United Arab Emirates. You, if you travel there, you come across these red forts. You discover they were built by the Portuguese to make sure that the trade past Hormuz, the one of the great trading stations at the entrance of the Persian Gulf, that was properly protected. And then the other thing which was really important when it came to trying to control the sea was simply to have those commercial stations. It wasn't a question, as I've said in the case of Srivijaya in Sumatra, of controlling large land masses behind them, but having commercial stations which were well-placed, uh, which, for instance, overlooked key straits. So the Straits of Malacca, um, what is now, Malacca is now a town in Malaysia, uh, and Singapore, not a great distance from there. Those two towns were superbly positioned to control the movement of ships down quite a narrow waterway. It seems to me that's really what mattered. And the Portuguese understood that. That was what they were trying to do when they established their empire around the edges of Africa and in the Indian Ocean in the 16th century. It wasn't a land empire. It was, it was an attempt to establish forts, trading stations. And then behind that, you would build up treaty relations with the local rulers. Portuguese did that partly to guarantee horrible story, but to guarantee the supply of slaves from the African interior. Uh, and in the case of India and parts of southern Africa, 
to uh, to guarantee access to precious items such as, for instance, gold mines, all that sort of thing. And and loca- so location, as you as you've said, is is key, and that's why Aden, for instance, would also become a very important uh, port in this story. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about the the access routes up towards the Mediterranean and uh, and the role of places like Aden? Aden is a very good example. I mean, it's uh, like Malacca, it controls access to some very important straits, which, as you say, led up through this rather barren sea. The Red Sea itself didn't produce very much, but there were these ports along its shores, both in the Roman period on the Egyptian side and then in the Middle Ages, which could be used to transship goods towards the River Nile. I mean, there's extraordinary archaeological discoveries in some of them. Uh, You have the letters of Arab merchants from the 13th century. You have coils of rope left by ancient Egyptian sailors. This is going back uh, into the second millennium BC, coils of rope which still survive in that uh, very dry atmosphere and which were part of the sort of naval equipment of the time. But Aden was extremely important because that was one of these points, as I said, with the silk route of the sea, you tended to to move around in stages. And this was a place where um, you could sort of stop off, you could move in various directions because merchants would very often want to move down the coast of East Africa. Uh, I've mentioned the search for gold, but also very important was ivory and African elephants, I regret to say, were uh, obviously the target of some of those merchants. So you could do all of that from Aden. And you could also move eastwards towards India because uh, the the Greeks had already perfected, they, they knew enough about the monsoons. They'd perfected knowledge of the route across, which meant you could cut right across that part of the Indian Ocean to reach South India uh, very quickly without having to edge along the coasts of South Arabia and what's now Pakistan and so on. So it had an enormous uh, significance. It had its own dynasty in the Middle Ages for quite a long period. So also you get sort of struggles over who should control it. And then Turks came in later and, and obviously that became a live issue because the Portuguese had their ambitions in the region too. So when was Aden's heyday? When was its uh, when was its height? Well, I would say the heyday, and this takes us back to those merchants I mentioned from Cairo, the Jewish merchants whose letters survive in enormous quantities. And we know that although they lived by large in Cairo, uh, they often went and settled for a while in Aden and further afield. I mean, we have uh, one who spends about 18 years or something in South India. Um, But Aden was the obvious base for them. And so we have a lot of information about the trade there and also about the politics, because you had attempts by various uh, external forces to conquer the city. And you, you know, so you have these descriptions of the defense of Aden, which sounds as if it was quite easy to defend, because Aden is built, the city is built in a crater, which makes it extremely hot at uh, the height of summer. But around that, they had lots and lots of walls. The gates were tightly controlled, partly to prevent smuggling. So they managed, by and large, to hold off these attackers. We have quite a detailed description in these letters from Cairo, uh, an attack in the 12th century. Okay, so 
sort of 12th century, 11th century? I'd say, I'd say, yes, sort of 1050 to 1150, something like that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What he was actually trying to do was to make the world aware of the cultural uh, supremacy of China and that it was the greatest power on earth. So it was a sort of soft power, you know, show respect to the Chinese emperor, um, acknowledge that that this that the emperor is the appointment of sort of God or the gods um, who stands above all the rest of humanity. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So, so we've got this, the Silk, Ro- Silk Roads going all the way around this, this sea. Uh, we could talk about Japan and Korea at the, at the far end, and you've got some great material on there, but I think maybe we'll see if we get to that, because I also wanted to just um, delve into a, a few more topics. I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned Africa there a bit. Um, does, the, does the southern cape of Africa sort of impede progress, uh, oceanic movement? Uh, is it difficult for ships to go round the, round, round the bottom of Africa and for, for activity to happen? Uh, on the on the on the far side of, of the continent, it's an area which people historians haven't written as much about it as they might have done. I think this may be bound up with the fact that, in if you go back to the second half of the twentieth century, you know, for a long period, South Africa was under the rule of the apartheid regime. Scholars from outside the country didn't write that much about its early history. There were one or two, actually, um, who, who, who did some quite good work. But the point was that uh, the Portuguese worked out very early on how to get round the Cape of Good Hope, uh, how to, I would almost say, fly around the Cape of Good Hope, because the trick was actually to swing out into the Atlantic uh, when you left Europe. Uh, so far out, in fact, that in 1500, they accidentally collided with Brazil, leading to the discovery of that part of South America. Um, but if you caught the roaring 40s, these very strong winds, which moved from west to east at great speed, then you would be swept past the southern tip of Africa uh, and you would find yourself pretty soon in the Indian Ocean. So the first voyage to the uh, Cape of Good Hope, uh, 1487-8, Bartolomeu Diaz, they achieved that and they got a little bit beyond the Cape. And then Vasco da Gama and all these others, that was how they did it. So the Cape wasn't an obstacle in itself, but it was the long way round. And uh, I could say also not just the long way, but from the perspective of the Portuguese, the wrong way. And they had this great ambition of somehow, you know, with the destruction of Muslim power in the Middle East, somehow they would take control of Alexandria, they would reestablish the Red Sea route, and then nobody would have to go this very long way round. The problem was that you know you could pick up vast quantities of pepper in India, take it all the way back to Lisbon, 
but it was a very long voyage. The pepper often became waterlogged. Uh, by the time it arrived, after such a long voyage, it didn't really match the quality of what the Venetians were able to obtain in Alexandria. So there was always this ambition to sort of take Southern Africa out of the picture, but it, of course it never never materialised. But, but the picture you've described earlier of where it, through all these short hops that we've got connections all around um, from uh, Asia and up into Europe, but I'm, I'm wondering, does, does that mean that Western Africa kind of slightly misses out on that because to get from Western Africa, you're either going up into the Med, which is probably difficult in terms of uh, winds, I'm getting beyond my nautical knowledge there, or you're having to go down uh, and go around the Cape of Good Hope, which until the Portuguese had worked it out was was, was more difficult. Yeah, West Africa is, there, there's some very curious aspects to that, because the, the peoples of West Africa, the Berbers and other peoples, um, the sub-Saharan population further down, they they didn't set out to sea, although enough of them arrived in the seven Canary Islands to uh, to establish a human population there. We don't know in what circumstances, and then lost knowledge of the sea. West Africa uh, in itself doesn't seem to have much of a maritime history, therefore, until the Portuguese began to establish bases as they marked out the route down to um, the the gold mines of the southern part, you know, where West Africa sticks, sticks out. So we're talking about Ghana, places like that. Um, and they needed to have, you know, tying in with what I said earlier, they needed to have these fortresses, trading bases, and so on, all the way along the coast of West Africa. Uh, coming back from West Africa, again, you had to master the winds. So what they would do is they would swing out uh, if they were trading down to the Canaries, which got onto the map effectively in the mid-14th century, they'd swing out. And this is how they became more and more aware of those uninhabited islands. Madeira, which had an enormous future as a centre first of sugar production and then later on wine production. And beyond that, the Azores, even further out in the Atlantic. But to get back to Portugal, it actually made sense to go in that d direction, northwest, um, away from Europe, and then catch the winds. So um, th they were very adept at all of this. But West Africa was basically seen as an area, if it was going to be exploited, that would be because it was thought to be um, the source of enormous amounts of high-quality gold. Well, it was actually. Uh, but the gold was in the interior, so somehow you had to get to that. You had to get to points along the coast, which would give access to the interior. Okay. Um, so you, you've painted a picture there of lots of connections, but connections made through probably short hops or, or people moving from one place to the next and then cargoes and, and people uh, uh, being being replaced. So I'm just wondering, I was um, I was chatting to a historian the other day about a brilliant uh, Anglo-Saxon Mapper Monday from uh, the early 11th century. It's a lovely document. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, which just it shows, shows the world um, in the 11th century with England and Britain kind of more prominent than they might be otherwise. Um, uh, and it must be based on classical sources, I'm sure. But um, how much would people, either in England, in Britain, or elsewhere, have, know about where these objects were coming from? So something's coming from China, but it's coming in short hops, and then it ends up in, say, Cairo. Does someone in Cairo know very much about where it's come from and the, and the people and the places where it's actually originally derived from? 
In the Islamic world, they would have known a little bit because there were these stories which are recorded in travel diaries, um, also in folk tales. And so, I mean, we've got Sinbad the sailor with his voyages as far as China. All that so they would have, they knew about China. There was enough contact with China um, for them to be able to say something about it. But the further west you went, yes, much, much, much less was known about it. Uh, and by the time you get to the late Middle Ages, by the time you get to Columbus, what are they relying on? They're relying basically on one poss possibly, possibly reliable source, which was Marco Polo's account of his travels in the late 13th century. And then there's John Mandeville, uh, a later account, which was written in what's now Belgium and was I would say completely invented, but it was just an attempt to to it it, it was work of, of of fiction basically. So um, Columbus, for instance, he, uh, he he took Polo extremely seriously, uh, and this was his guide to the world that he was trying to discover. Uh, it was the only account, for instance, that they had in the West of Japan. There's nothing about Japan in Western sources that anybody has uh, ever discovered other than Marco Polo's quite detailed description, actually, of the attempt by the Mongol Khan to conquer Japan. The, the, the ruler of China launches, twice launches, great fleets against Japan in the 13th century. So it, it was all extremely vague what they knew about these worlds. And even, you know, if one turns to the Norsemen, people call them Vikings, but to me, Vikings are aggressive warriors. These are settlers from Scandinavia. You look at them and their knowledge, because they did get to North America uh, and they spent over 400 years living in Greenland, which geologically is part of North America, really. Um, they didn't really have any idea what it was. Um, these were just remote islands. Um, in one source, we even find their discovery of America Vinland uh, being described as part of Africa, which uh, you know, really does imply a rather um, strange view of the geography of the world. But but um, but we shouldn't infer from the fact that you, you find a bit of Chinese porcelain somewhere interesting a long way from where it's originated from. We shouldn't infer any element of globalisation or uh, an awareness on the part of those people where they're living of anything um, about the rest of the world. We shouldn't. We, we can't. We can't infer that from from finding artefacts. Yeah. Well, uh, this this concept of globalisation, of course, has aroused a lot of controversy because there's so many different ways of using the term. Um, if one means by globalisation that economic activities in a place like China are having a sort of ripple effect that reaches as far as the Mediterranean world, then actually, you know, you can make your case. I've mentioned my 700,000 pieces of pottery uh, found underneath Cairo. Um, but um, attempts to show there's actually been a recent attempt. I, this would involve talking about another book, a book called The Year 1000, which has come out recently, an attempt to show that the world became much more connected around the year 1000, all the way from China the author even argues as far south as the Maya 
uh, temples in Central America, which she believes various Norse travellers got to. Um, it depends, you know, if you're talking about a connected world, if you mean globalization in that sense, uh, yes, it's actually a, a phenomenon that reaches very far back in time. And we can see something of that even in the ancient world. Um, if we mean what economists might mean by it, but really sort of thinking about the way in which prices and wages at one end of the world help to determine prices and wages at another end of the world, then obviously the picture is it's, it's more difficult to establish a case. Okay. Um, that's uh, Valerie Hansen, the, the book you're referring to, isn't it? Valerie yeah. Hansen, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's a very the, lively book. Actually. She's yeah. been on this podcast, yeah. actually, if anyone wants to listen to, to her, give her thoughts. Um, uh, she, she was on a, a few uh, a few months ago. Um, one of the things in your in your book is, that you, I think you say something like, the heroes of your story, if there are heroes, are the traders rather than the explorers, um, which is, an, which is a, an interesting phrase and way of looking at it. So you've talked a lot about trade here and about the movement of trade. Um, and I guess traders don't tend to get, you know, they don't tend to get the heroic records, do they? So we maybe don't know so much about them, particularly if they're moving in short hops. Um, so is, is trade the, the key story here? Um, is there not much in the way of military initiatives or even exploration? Is exploration a, a sort of a concept in the early medieval period that people would recognise? Yes, I, they would recognise that. But um, it seems to me that if we're actually looking at how things develop over time. I mean, there are sort of accidental discoveries. The whole question, for instance, of the Vikings arriving in Iceland. Uh, I, I just was reading very, very recently, um, there's a case being made by archaeologists in Iceland that they got there much earlier than we generally assume. They used to go there, I don't know, to pasture their sheep or something at various times of the year. Oh, to, and also to, uh, to get walrus ivory. Um, so there are these sort of accidental discoveries which might lead to casual contact. Again, the Norse in North America, very brief period of casual contact down the coast of North America, more intensive contact across the water from Greenland because they used to go into what's now northern Canada to collect wood for hundreds of years. Um, that's, in a sense, it's not really discovery in the sense that this knowledge is not diffused. It comes back to what you were asking earlier about, you know, what do people know about China? Um, the people who maintain the regular rhythm of contact, that's what I find particularly interesting. It's these commercial contacts over long periods of time. So to give you an example from the end of the Middle Ages, right? Christopher Columbus reaches the Caribbean in 1492. He establishes himself on the island of Hispaniola, now Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, and uh, that begins to export gold um, and cotton and some other goods towards Western Europe, towards Spain. Um, but what's really striking is how within a few years, within 10 years or so, the regular movement of ships, the number of ships that are going back and forth across the Atlantic, across a route which nobody had dared to try uh, in previous centuries. And once they've actually worked out, once the explorers have worked out basically how you do it, or to give another example, the Portuguese going down the coast of West Africa, you had to work out how to do it because there are lots of sandbanks. There was one particular one, Cape Bojador, uh, off the coast of, I suppose it must be 
Western Sahara, whatever that part of the world is now called. Um, and everyone was terrified of going beyond that. And we're always told, well, they thought there were monsters beyond Cape Bojador. But actually, the real issue was that these seas seemed to be impossible to navigate because, you know, there were all these sandbanks and obstacles. But once you'd actually mastered all of that, and then you could keep up a regular flow and that the routes became incomparably less dangerous as well. For the pioneers, for the explorers, you know, the rate of loss was extremely high. You think of Magellan and the large number of uh, the great majority of the sailors dying on the voyage, including Magellan himself. Um, But once these routes become regularly established, uh, and that's the work of the traders. Now, when you talk about the traders, there's another dimension, of course, because to me, trade isn't just about making a profit. That's an important part of it. It's also about the cultural impact which we see. So if we take the example of Chinese trade with Japan in the Middle Ages, the enormous cultural impact of that trade, the development of Buddhism in Japan, uh, all sorts of features of Japanese culture which are derived from, in a very modified form generally, uh, Chinese culture, including the writing system, for instance. And you know those things are being transmitted very often by sea. The Indian Ocean brought Buddhism and Islam right across to um, to parts of the Far East, to Southeast Asia. So um, all those cultural contacts, to me, are of enormous importance. When we talk about porcelain from China again, or the tea from China, the way in which the fashions within Europe. Uh, uh, in the more modern period, are being moulded by these contacts across the oceans. Um, I've already thrown in one anachronistic term of globalisation, so I might as well go with another. So is, is, <laughs> is that kind of soft power then, in a way, this sort of spread of ideas and uh, and uh, culture? Well, it, it can be. I mean, the, there's a great ex, uh, example of soft power in the book, uh, which, I mean, it doesn't look like soft power because according to the sources, tens of thousands of soldiers and ships are involved. And this is the famous Ming voyages in the early 15th century, the Chinese voyages led by the Admiral Zheng He, which uh, went as far as East Africa. Indeed, some of the sailors even got to Mecca because some of them were Muslim. Um, and, you know, what what was the Ming emperor trying to do? He wasn't trying to establish direct rule over people in countries like Bengal and Somalia and so on. What he was actually trying to do was to make the world aware of the cultural uh, supremacy of China and that it was the greatest power on earth. So it was a sort of soft power, you know, show respect to the Chinese emperor, um, acknowledge that that this that the emperor is the appointment of sort of God or the gods um, who stands above all the rest of humanity. Uh, so we do have cases of that, certainly, yes. And and you know, rulers in the Middle East far back in time, all that sort of thing. I've got. Um, I've, I knew I'd have far too many questions, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna um, just. There's a couple more. I'd love to just uh, tackle if you've got time. Um, disease. So right now um, we're in. You know, coming out of the of the throes of COVID nineteen. Hopefully, um, 
one of you know one of the most famous medieval diseases black death of course um possibly moved around by boat by sea by by traders there um how much of a how much of a story is the spread of disease as a as a vector through oceanic travel how much how far does that come through in your book um it does come through um i mean the great example of this is the way in which the population of the americas was ravaged by diseases brought from europe smallpox I mean, probably uh, measles, all sorts of diseases that uh, were much less lethal within Europe than they were within this unprotected population of the Americas. Uh, but there's also a positive side. Can I mention that? Um, in one chapter, I deal with the building of first the Suez Canal and then the Panama Canal. And the building of the Panama Canal in the late 19th, early 20th century. It opened in 1914. Uh, this actually led to the eradication of disease. The physical conditions were appalling. Uh, there was yellow fever. That was only one of the diseases you were liable to pick up in that part of the world. Malaria, everything. Um, and the, the building of the canal gave medical scientists the opportunity to look at what was happening, to realise, for instance, that um, the way standing water was just being left around, sometimes just for decorative purposes, potted plants, things like that, was allowing mosquitoes to flourish, all this sort of thing. So they actually managed to eradicate yellow fever in that part of the world. Um, so it's, it's not all a, a bad story, but inevitably... As we see in our own day, long-distance contact does lead to the spread of disease. And the worst examples that we know about, I say examples because there's more than one, is our bubonic plague, particularly the Black Death of the middle of the 14th century, with a mortality within Europe, Mediterranean, of maybe 50%. That was David Abelafia. His book, the Boundless Sea, A Human History of the Oceans, is on sale now, published by Alan Lane. If you want to hear a longer version of this conversation, you can find that on our website at historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts. In the exclusive web content, Dave Musgrove took the conversation beyond the early medieval period, which was the focus of this podcast, to ask Professor Abalafia for his views on how far the story of oceanic travel was driven by the slave trade. That's at historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Friday when Alice Proctor we'll be discussing the colonial history of Britain's museums.